Uh, the scripture that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see hear Jesus talking about an unforgivable sin. He's going to talk about a, an eternal sin. The consequences of it go on forever. The people who commit this sin, they can never be forgiven. They don't go to heaven because of it. And so that raises the question, what, what is? What is this unforgivable sin? What is a sin that is so horrible and the consequences so permanent that people can never be forgiven it? Is it uh, some secret adultery that's been kept hidden for decades? Is it sexually molesting a younger family member so that for the rest of their life they are mentally and emotionally damaged? Is it giving somebody a venereal disease so they can't have children? Is it driving drunk, killing a family? Is it cursing God? Is it getting so angry with God that you just despise him and you say, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you because of what you let happen to me. But what is the unforgivable sin? We want to answer that question this morning. But in the process of answering it, we will discover that it's really part of a larger question in the scripture that we're going to look at. The question of what is the unforgivable sin is part of a larger question that pervades the section of Scripture. And the larger question is, who belongs to Jesus and who doesn't? Who does he embrace and who does he exclude? Who does he draw in and align with himself and who does he dismiss and leave outside? That's the larger question. And as we look at that larger question of who belongs to Jesus and who doesn't, we will come across the unforgivable sin. Now this larger question of who does Jesus embrace and who does he exclude, who belongs to him and who doesn't, this larger question comes up as we read about the immense popularity that Jesus has. Word of his miracles, his healings of diseases, of sicknesses, and particularly the word how he can see people who have some demonic force within them that is agitating them and roiling them, erupting and making them do things they don't want to do. He can get that demons, those demons out of them. As word of his miraculous activity spreads like wildfire. We're going to read that thousands of people, some coming as much as 100 miles away, they are streaming to the northern shore of Galilee where he is in hopes of getting him to do something like that for them. They are coming from miles around. If they can just touch him, like touch him. And so many people are coming that they're starting to press and crowd in and it looks like it's possible that Jesus will actually be crushed by the push. And so he says to his disciples, get a boat ready. I need to get in it, create a little bit of a buffer of shallow water so that I can continue to talk to the people without having them just crush me. And within this large crowd that we will read about, 
We will learn who is it from this crowd that Jesus draws in and embraces. He aligns them with him. And we will also read about those who are excluded, dismissed, and remain outside. And within this second group of those who will remain outside, we will come across the unforgivable sin. So let's open our Bibles and let's start with his immense popularity. It'll be Mark chapter three. If you're using the Bible uh, under your seat or in front of you, it's page 1066. 1066. I'll give you time to pick up that Bible and find it. Mark chapter three, page 1066. We'll start reading about his immense popularity. Word of his healings is drawing people north, south, west, miles around. Mark chapter three, verse seven. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, that's the, the Lake of Galilee, and a great crowd followed from that immediate territory of Galilee and then from the larger province of Judea, which was south of Galilee, and even from the capital city of Jerusalem. And they also came from Idumea. Now that's a hundred miles south of Galilee, hundred miles. They also came from the west, I'm sorry, from the east, from the other side of the Jordan River. They came from beyond the Jordan, and they also came from 50 miles to the north, Tyre and Sidon, that's Lebanon. So this huge crowd is coming from all around in hopes of being able to touch Jesus and have something miraculous occur within their life. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. He told his disciples, have a boat ready because of the crowd, lest they crush him for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases, they pressed around him to touch him. And those who came with these agitating demonic spirits within them, as they got near to him, the demonic spirits recognized Jesus, and it says they saw him, they fell down, and they cried out, you are the son of God! They immediately knew whose presence they were in. Their ranting and raving is not exactly the endorsement or character reference that Jesus wants at the moment. And so he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So here's this huge crowd drawn to Jesus because of the miraculous works that he's been doing. And then out of this crowd, Jesus picks those that he is going to align with him. He's going to embrace them. He's going to draw them in. And we read that those who Jesus embraces will be those who are going to spend time with him and they are going to carry on God's work in the world. Okay? Those that are going to belong to Jesus at, the, at a close level are going to be those who are going to be with him, kind of like an internship, 
They're going to watch him. They're going to see him. They're going to watch, hear, learn what he does. And then they're going to commit themselves to going out and doing the same thing. They're going to be with him and they're going to help him carry out God's work in the world. That's who Jesus is going to embrace. And we're going to read the names of the 12 people that he will call to himself. And so in verse 13, we read of those that Jesus will embrace. He went up to the mountain and he called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 of them. He called them apostles, which means those who will be sent out. And they will be with him. They will spend the time with him. And then he will send them out to join him in doing God's work. They will send them out to preach good news, and they will also have the ability to force the demonic spirits outside of people, okay? And so we read their names. Here are the names of the 12. Simon, to whom he will give a name, Peter, eventually. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. And Jesus gave them the nickname Boazernus, which means sons of thunder. We will say hotheads, <laughs> troublemakers, always stirring up trouble. Okay, other names, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon of the Canaanian, and the one who eventually betrayed him, Judas Iscariot. These are the ones that Jesus embraces. Those who belong to Jesus are those who will be with him, spend time with him, and then commit themselves to joining him in doing God's work. Jesus embraces those but there are those he does not embrace. Mark will go on to say that there are two groups that he excludes. He dismisses them. They are on the outside. They are not part with him. And these two groups fall into two categories. The first group that Jesus excludes will be those who want to downplay what he is doing. Tone it down. Don't go overboard. Downplay. That's the first group. The second group that he excludes, though, they don't want to just downplay it. They want to discredit it. They want to bring it into reproach. One group says, um, let's just de-emphasize it. De-emphasize it. This other group says, we're going to demonic, we're going to demonize it, we're going to demonize it. This group says, eh, he's, he's excessive, he's excessive. This group says, he's evil, he's evil. One group says, he's too serious. He's really satanic. And so as we read about these two groups, both of which are excluded by Jesus. When we come to this second group, we will come across the unforgivable sin. Now Mark, to show us that both of these groups have come to a negative conclusion about Jesus, he will arrange his material in the rest of the chapter in a sandwich form. He will start with this first group, those who want to downplay it, de-emphasize it. He'll start with them. And then he'll come to this second group, those who want to demonize it, those who say that Jesus is evil, he's satanic. 
And then he'll return to this first group, the ones who just say, let's not get too excited or overboard about it. So let's start with this first group. And the first group that Jesus basically does not claim is his own family. It's his mother and his brothers. Uh, They've heard about the crowds that he's drawing. They've heard about the activities that he's going in. And they have come to the conclusion, Jesus has lost his mind. Jesus is not thinking straight. Jesus is going overboard. He's not eating when he ought to be eating. He's skipping meals. He's not taking care of himself. He's not acting in his best interest. We need to get to Jesus and have a family intervention. We need to pull him out of that crowd and we need to get him off by himself so we can talk some sense into him. We need to save him from himself. And so they come from, they're not living too far away. They come to where he is uh, inside of a house with a big crowd around but they can't get inside. Uh, they, they, they can't get inside because there's just too big of a crowd. And so they're going to send a word in to some people and to tell, you know, and it gets passed into where he is. Tell Jesus his mother and his brothers are outside and they want to see him. And the word gets passed into Jesus. And Jesus essentially leaves them outside. Even though they are his relatives, They don't understand. Later on they will, and their heart will be changed. But at this point, they think they've got to save Jesus from themselves. And then Jesus says, they're not part of the people that I include. Let's read about this first group. Let's start with the sandwich arrangement that Mark has in verse 20. After reading about those he embraces and the names of them who will be with him and join him in God's work, then we read about the first group, his family, that uh, he does not include. So verse 20, he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Too many people, too much activity going on. They're just skipping the meals. When the family heard it, when his family heard it, They went out to seize him. They are going to forcibly pull him away from the crowd because they're saying he's out of his mind. He's not thinking rationally. He's not acting in his own best interest. Then if we drop down to the sandwich arrangement where Mark concludes this first group, we read in verse 31, his mother and his brothers came and they have to stand outside because of this great crowd. They sent to him... They're standing outside, but they sent a word, passed along, and they called him. And the crowd was sitting around Jesus. They said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside. They are looking for you. And Jesus leaves them outside. He basically does not own them. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? This is more than kinship. This is more than blood relationship. Those who are really connected with me. Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around at those who sat around him, listening to him speak. Here are my mother. Here are my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and my sister and my brother. Jesus embraces those who spend time with him and will do God's will but he excludes those 
who want to downplay, de-emphasize. Don't go overboard. Don't get excited. He excludes those. And, you know, we probably have people like that in our lives. They, they want to downplay our commitment to Christ. They, they don't understand it. They don't want to, they, they think, man, you're just being, you're being a little excessive, okay? I, I, I teach at Talbot, and uh, I would say 30 to 40% of our students are Asian, Asian students. And I hear countless stories of how their families, the families want them to you know, be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, give them some high paying job, some high status career. Going to seminary? You're gonna spend thousands of dollars, get in debt, years of graduate education to study for a ministry job that won't pay anything? Where's your brain? You're not thinking straight. And downplay. Don't go overboard. Don't take it so serious. Their, their heart is not with Jesus. Uh, when I was pastoring in Austin, uh, Texas, uh, a man in the church told me, he says, Don, I, Pastor, I, I wanted to give 10%. I want to tithe. You know, I, I want to do that. But my, my, my wife said, no, 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 no. That's, that's excessive. No, no, not going to do it. Okay. Sometimes we have people that are close to us and they don't understand. Jesus embraces those who will spend time with him and do his will, but he excludes those who want to downplay and de-emphasize the ministry. There's a second group that he excludes, and this group is much more serious. This group, their sin, is so devastating and so permanent that they pass a point of no return and they can never be forgiven. The second group comes from the capital down south and they are the religious teachers of the nation. They are called scribes because they spend time studying the Old Testament scriptures. They are the authority for spiritual matters for the people. They decide what, how things are to be viewed. Down south, they have heard reports of what's been happening up in Galilee, and they don't like what they're hearing. Somebody up there named Jesus is claiming to do things that only God does. He's claiming to heal lepers. He's claiming to forgive sins. He's partying with prostitutes, with the tax collectors. And he's teaching the people things that are contrary to our understanding of what the people ought to believe. He's teaching them they don't have to obey our Sabbath rules. They don't have to fast as often as we say. We've got to put a stop to this. We can't let it get out of hand. He's got too much credibility with all the people. They're listening to him. They're f following what he's saying. His credibility comes from the fact that he's been doing miraculous stuff. What can we do? They come to the conclusion they cannot deny the miracles. Too many witnesses. Too many people saw it happen. Okay? So what can we do to discredit it? 
We can't deny it. Let's discredit it. Let's bring some bad explanation. Let's put a spin on it that will explain it in a negative way. And so the, the spin they come up with is this. Yes, Jesus is doing the miracles. Jesus is doing the getting the demonic people out of pe- out of demonic forces out of people. But you know how he's able to do that? He has Satan inside of himself, and in the power of Satan, he is getting rid of Satan is working through him to get rid of the lesser demons. The prince of demons, the chief demons, the head of all the demons, Satan. That's who is in Jesus. And Satan is forcing his lesser allies, get out of these people, get out of these people. That's the spin they're going to put on it. Let's read about it, beginning in verse 22. The scribes who came down from the elevated hill of Jerusalem, they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. That's another name for Satan, Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. He is possessed by Satan, and through Satan's power, Satan is getting rid of the allies and the forces which have captured the people. And Satan is freeing the people of his demonic underlings. Jesus hears this spin, and he says, That's about the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Do you guys know what you're saying? You're saying that Satan is fighting his own allies, overpowering them, and forcing them to leave and release the captives that they've held. You're saying Satan is undoing all of the successes of capturing these people and bringing misery into their life. Satan is basically in a civil war against people within his own kingdom, his own demonic forces. You know what happens when people are in a civil war? The whole kingdom comes to an end. Abraham Lincoln quoted this. A house divided against itself cannot stand. A kingdom divided against itself. Its end has come. You basically are saying Satan is committing regime suicide. This is what Jesus says. He called to them, verse 23, and he said to them in parables, using the metaphor of a kingdom, how can Satan cast out Satan? How can Satan force out his own demonic forces? Does that make sense? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against his own forces and is divided, he cannot stand. He is coming to an end. Your explanation just doesn't make any sense at all. 
In fact, I'll tell you what the real explanation is. Here's the truth, you guys. Satan is not in me. Satan is out there trying to protect what he has. Satan is like a strong man in his house, and he's going to stop anyone who comes in and wants to take anybody out of his house or anything out of his house, and he's going to guard his house. Now, the only way you can get into that house and take out whoever's in that house or rob or plunder that house, the only way you can do that is you've got to deal with that strong man first who's guarding it. You've got to bind him up, you've got to handcuff him, you've got to stick a gag in his mouth, and you've got to throw him in a corner. Then you can walk into his house, and you can just take anybody out of there. You can rob anything. You can plunder it. You can take loot it. You can do anything you want as long as you take care of that strong man. And that's what I have done. I have bound Satan. And now I am freeing all of his captives. That's the true explanation. Verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he can indeed plunder anything he wants in that house. That's the explanation. And then comes the terrible charge that these scribes have committed the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is saying that the Holy Spirit from God that is in Jesus and is doing the miraculous works. The, whole, the, the unpardonable sin is to say that is an evil spirit, is a demonic spirit, it is a satanic spirit, and that's where the power comes from. Jesus will say, any sin that anybody does, even any cursing of God, it can be forgiven. But when you say that Satan is in Jesus, you have indicated a heart that is so Hard, so determined that you will not see truth and you will do anything to destroy it, that you, your mind has so moved in a direction that you cannot turn and change from it. You have passed a point. You are incapable of seeing truth. You can never be forgiven. And Jesus will make that charge in verse 28. Truly I say to you, truly I say to you, mark my words, mark my words, all sins will be forgiven the children of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, that can be forgiven. Any sin against another person or any cursing, blaspheming of God, it can be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, whoever says that the Holy Spirit in Jesus is satanic, they have never have forgiveness. They are guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The unforgivable sin is saying that Satan is in Jesus. You haven't done it. You have not done the unforgivable sin. Whatever sin you and I have done, whatever it may be, adultery, sexual molestation, drunk driving, lying, cheating, cursing God, cursing God, whatever sin, 
Jesus has paid the penalty for that sin. When he died on the cross, whatever you owed God for that sin, Jesus paid it, and God will not hold it against you. The penalty has been paid. It'll never be held against you. This morning is a time to welcome that forgiveness. Welcome that forgiveness. Receive that forgiveness. It's a time to say to God, I did it. I did it. I acknowledge, I confess it, I confess it. I accept the payment of Jesus on my behalf and I stand free. Today is a day to receive the forgiveness, to rejoice in it, and to let Jesus embrace you as one who will spend time with him and join in doing his work. Our Father, so so marvelous that you offer such free mercy and grace and forgiveness to us because your son Jesus so willingly paid our penalty for us and without any deserving on our part but simply grace on your part, we receive a gift freely that we did not earn but which we rejoice in. For we know that in the forgiveness that comes through Jesus, we are eternally secure in your presence. We give you thanks in his name. Amen.